Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda, and today I'm joined by Jessica and Amira, and we are going to talk about athleisure, the politics of it, MLM, multi-level marketing or pyramid schemes, nebulous, and their relationship with sports. Then we're going to burn some things that really irritated us, inflamed us, hurt us in sports, and celebrate the people who are doing the work to change it. Before we get into all that, this week was pretty fun with the Met Gala. (laughs) A lot of people had different ways to see themselves in it or to comment on it. Jessica, did anything strike you in particular? My favorite was Iman. She showed up in this amazing, was it feathers? Is that like what it was made out of? And it was like a huge halo around her head and then a skirt and it was all gold. It came right from the sun. She looked like the sun. She looked like the sun. Like you should just go look at it right now. Like I couldn't look away from it. It is just spectacular. And so that was absolutely my favorite thing from the Met Gala. I just, how does a human being look like that? It was incredible. It was incredible. For me, a lot of people were like jiffing their birth year. Did you do that, Jess? Did you like? I did do it mm-hmm. after you told me to. And What'd I'm like um, full on 80s aerobics outfits. And then <laughs> and then like there was the uh, gif of Whitney Houston in the I Want to Dance with Somebody Ooh. video, which is my favorite song by Whitney Houston. So <laughs> I'll take that one. Mine was ABBA leisure suits. When I <laughs> put that up, it was like ABBA in white pants. And um, then they had had these like colorful button up things or or whatever. And they're Um, back. So they're relevant, man. (laughs) (laughs) They're doing some like incredible hologram tour or something. I don't really know. And a new album. Yeah. I mean. What year is it? What do they do without all those drugs from the 70s? (laughs) I don't know. Um, But my favorite was Rihanna. No surprise. And I love that she showed up in a comforter. And um, Rocky ASAP also, they just look like two comforters that I just wanted to like throw myself into, you know, like they look so like comfy and pretty and beautiful. And I thought that was spectacular. And then for the after party, her like t-shirt dress and I don't know, she's always just inspiring on all the levels. I was like, please take me back to your yacht and we can smoke cigars and I'll just wake up in your comforter dress. Amira, what about <laughs> you? The level of thirst Brenda has for Rihanna. Oh, so oh it's un- ridiculous. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's constant. I love it. I mean, you know, I loved all the Black girls who showed up in amazing things. I guess keeping with the theme of this episode, Nia Dennis, who um, I just had the pleasure of talking to for a different project, uh, showed up and brought gymnastics to the Met, um, did a whole, like, routine on the steps and splits in this, like... Oh, she's, I just, I love her. And a band, a marching band behind her. Simone, of course, wore a dress that was like the same weight as her. Like I think it was 90 90 pounds. Pound, 98 pounds. Well, it was, un, it was ridiculous. It was very heavy. Yeah, I, I loved all that. But um, when, when uh, Brenda said, 
Jeff, your birth year, I don't know why I heard birth month. And so I put in June and the first thing that came up was like hands made tail. And I was like, oh. that's not, that's bad vibes, no. bad vibes. But then no. I saw that she said years. So I put in my birth year, 1988. And the first GIF were these two black girls in kind of cute, very 80s outfits, like black jean jackets and a skirt and lots of buttons, like totally could get with that. But then I was like, should I know who these are? Like, I, I felt like my black card was about to be revoked. So I went down a rabbit hole to find who these dancing girls were. And they were a rap duo named La Trim. And it was from their very famous music video in 1988, <laughs> Cars That Go Boom. We like black cars. I don't want to hear shit about mumble rap or anything from our generation because if you listen to the cars that go boom, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss rap. It's like, I like them tall. We this is the, this is now what I know in my head because of you, Brenda Elsie. I'm sorry about that one. LuLaRoe. What in the hell? LuLaRoe, what is that? We are creating confidence and security. Jessica, how did we get started on this topic? Yeah, so there is a four-part documentary on Amazon Prime titled Lula Rich about the company LuLaRoe, which was made famous by its sales of comfortable leggings a few years ago. And it was a big deal. I want to put this in perspective. In 2016, it reported sales of roughly a billion dollars. In 2017, there were approximately 80,000 independent distributors selling the company's clothing. But, big but, it was a multi-level marketing scheme, an MLM, a pyramid scheme, which means that people who sold LuLaRoe gear not only purchased their gear up front, the base purchase package was like $5,000 and they would not let you return it if you couldn't sell it, but their sellers were required then to recruit other people to sell LuLaRoe clothes as well. You then got commission off the people below you making sales, just as the person who recruited you made money off of your sales. This is technically okay, as long as there's an actual market for your product, but it's very typical for those markets to be oversaturated, and in the case of LuLaRoe, to shrivel up when leggings start to be shipped while wet, with mold on them, and with holes in them. MLMs are always a no-win situation for everyone who is not at the top of the chain as it is impossible to continually recruit more sellers and also continue to sell your product. Lula Rich, the documentary, traces how the company got started and how eventually it bankrupted a bunch of people and was sued by the state of Washington for being a pyramid scheme. A couple of things before we get into it. I just want to say, first, Lula Rowe absolutely targeted stay-at-home moms, specifically white stay-at-home moms. Second, a big part of how they do that targeting was, like all MLMs, they preach a whole game about how selling these leggings and recruiting others to do so would lead you to improve your life in all kinds of ways, to improve yourself, to improve the lives of those around you. They make all kinds of promises to you about how being part of this company will uplift you, not only financially, but also spiritually. And then the people running the MLM always blame you when you fail, even though you are set up to fail. It's this horrible combination. And LuLaRoe is just like the perfect example of how all these things worked. But their <laughs> leggings were very comfortable. Amira, longer history context here. Yeah, I mean, I think that the entanglement of leisure, sport, fashion, leggings has a really robust history. Um, and you might think about Lulu Row leggings or like me confusing with Lululemon. Um, and it just kind of like for us right now, it's like leggings are everywhere. <laughs> um, but how did they come to be that way? And I think that we can actually... 
um, there's like a few peaks that we want to hit with this history as early as the late 19th century, for instance, you see um, fashion innovations starting to happen, especially um, as we move into the early 20th century on college campuses, where people were converting gym wear, sports wear, sports coats into more leisurely, every time fashion. And let me tell you, the, the old folks at that time were very mad about this, right? This is a time where dress is infused with all these meanings it still is but there was a dress code for like everything you had your before dinner outfit and your after dinner outfit and your sports outfit and one of the things that we see happening is college students especially and for more on this read the book um, by uh, Deidre Clemente who's a fashion historian who wrote a book called Dress Casual about how college students changed the game here and what you see is that sports wear those sports coats that you might wear for like a game of squash or tennis or whatever become what you also wear in the morning for a walk or in the evening with your friends. Radical, radical. (laughs) (laughs) But this blending of like sportswear and fashion was really troubling, but also something that everybody picked up. And so this is, for instance, how we got shorts as like a thing that people just wore and not just when they were playing games, but like you could just wear shorts, right? Um, And so that's one of the peaks that we see. Hmm. Another one, and especially when we're thinking about how business gets involved, how corporates back athleisure, comes in the 1970s. And this is when fitness regimes are gaining in popularity, where companies become huge, gigantic players to not only uh, sell this, but like mass produced and market these um, sportswear items influenced by technological advancements. So you get Lycra and spandex and nylon and these materials that have more give but tuck in where you want to and can be dressed up and down. So everybody's kind of been in that position where you have a pair of like black leggings that you're like, okay, I could I could make this work professionally or not, right? And so I think that that's kind of what brings us to today, especially after a damn pandemic. But the idea that technological innovations have allowed athletic wear, athleisure, sportswear to have more flexibility and, and durability, unless it's a LuLaRoe uh, uh, legging, of course. But also because as, as historians like Deidre document, the kind of way that United States fashion especially has kind of been uh, dressing more casual and casual through the years. Um, But I think that that's kind of where we find ourselves now, which is this long history of sports and fashion mixing, not just on the field, but for spectators and for people who don't even like sports, but have benefited from these technological advances and changing social norms. Thanks, Amira. That's that's really helpful in terms of thinking about it with the longer trajectory. I was looking at LuLaRoe's slogan, um, and on their website, there's a big sort of tag that says, creating freedom through fashion, which I wanted to think a little bit about. We often experience sports as freedom physically, um, a release uh, of tension, of, of physical constraint, and yet we know it's a place of a lot of oppression. And I could see how all of the marketing appealed to people, especially working class people, the idea of being your own boss, working out of your home, getting rid of your difficult commute, you're maybe solving some of your childcare issues. So you can see the attraction. It's not that these are just, you know, ignorant, stupid people or whatever, but they're they're people that want real things that make sense. And um Jessica, they were specifically targeting working class women. Yeah, 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 yeah. They went right after 
women in particular, which it's so interesting hearing Amir do that whole history and thinking about the shift towards athleisure over time. And like so much of that has got to be connected to doing exercise at home, like that you're like working out at mm-hmm. home as well, mm. right? That you're not going out to do it. Um, and just think of like how that's continued. And you think about these women in their homes and like wanting to be comfortable and wanting to make money and try to participate in their household. But also just you can't overstate how much they went after like this will make you a better person and I just think that's such an um it's so seductive (laughs) um and especially couple that with the promise that you could possibly make a lot of money and 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 go up in class by doing this as well so yeah they absolutely went after women and it's a big market Jess this isn't like a small thing yeah it's huge people want this clothing in 2020 the U.S. market was something like a hundred billion with a b dollars there's even a magazine uh, called athleisure magazine and my favorite part about it is that it describes itself as being about athleisure culture which is apparently a thing we've all learned about now there's an athleisure culture there is athleisure culture but there's also all these kind of meetings that are projected into those who wear athleisure and sometimes these meanings are overlapping and sometimes they're contradicting I know for instance at the middle school that me and Jess's kids go to there's like a group of girls right that are nicknamed the Lululemons because of their dress style and it's meant pejoratively by their peers but I think it's interesting right that that is coded in that way right that they're wearing expensive things they, they're they all kind of dressing the same um, and I think that you see that with the idea of like yoga lottie moms with their Starbucks cup and their Lululemons. And that's absolutely about class, but it's also about race, right? Because one of the things we're also seeing here is that if you are not white, if you are not skinny, if you are not kind of in this mold, then athleisure doesn't hit the same for you, right? There's controversy when people are saying, hey, for instance, can we have more size variety in in a lot of like Lululemon leggings or like Old Navy leggings? And people will say, not everybody should be in leggings, right? Not everybody should be in yoga pants. And the reality is that for some people, you can wear yoga pants and have a Starbucks cup and be read as upper middle class mom you know, whatever stereotypes come with that. But if you're black, if you're overweight, et cetera, if you're young or if you're old and you're in that same outfit, you're going to be read in a very different way, right? It could be seen as sloppy or not, you know, you don't have the luxury of using athleisure. Now, I live in athleisure, absolutely, but I'm also well aware that I don't have the luxury of of being read in it um, professionally in certain spaces. Um, but I think that that meaning is also something that people can aspire to. So when you're buying a pair of leggings, you're not just buying it, you're buying the dream, you're buying all the rhetoric that's infused mm. um, around it. And then I also have to say, Jess, you talked about like the rise of working out and working at home. I think, again, one of these things where, first of all, the way that time works for people now it's absolutely, even if you're not working at home, you might be running from a meeting to the gym to this, and then you just end up in your your athleisure all day. Um, but then on the other side of that, there's people who have had changing bodies for a number of reasons, whether they're having babies or they're gaining weight or they're losing weight, especially in the pandemic. And you can see how pants that grow and shrink and give are different than like putting on jeans. And we all joked during the pandemic, like, when is the first time you wore jeans in this pandemic? Like, how long did that take? So I think that there is something there, too, about comfort. But then the other side of that is, like, who gets 
to access comfort, right? And and who doesn't? And speaking of working out at home, Amira, in terms of athleisure, what has like Peloton, for example, been up to? Uh, actually, just this week, they they dropped a reinvigorated Peloton apparel line, and I think it's really interesting because you can see how it coincides with their boom over the pandemic, where people were turning to home workout space, and so therefore Peloton rose. Like they were everywhere. They they turned into this kind of laughing joke to like everything. And when I joined Peloton right at the beginning of the pandemic, you could not get their apparel. Like it wasn't something that they stocked or invested in. They had partners with like a few brands like Lululemon, partners with Spiritual Gangster, um, Nike, where you could get like one piece. But everybody knew that when they announced a drop of new stuff, you had to get it because it would sell out in two hours because they just weren't investing in production. And over the last year and a half, it's been very interesting to see as they've reimagined themselves, not just as like a home fitness company, but like they're expanding greatly. They've actually chose to invest in their apparel line. So not only announcing new partnerships with Adidas, still working with Nike and Lululemon, um, but they do stuff like around Black History Month, they paired Black artists with Black instructors and they came out with their own design, Black History Month apparel that gave proceeds to Black organizations. And then just this week, They announced their line that they've been tested and invested in that is going to be fully stocked. In just over 18 months, you've seen athleisure become something that was in the back of their kind of brand to now forefront because when you're walking around with Peloton apparel on, you're also walking around as like an advertising billboard for the company. With the rise of these incredibly lucrative athletic wear companies and thinking about it as a culture, LuLaRoe is certainly not alone in the way that it's tried to encapsulate a whole lifestyle and spread that message. Jess, what about Zaya? Is that how I say it? I think it's Zaya. Yeah. And I feel like we're going to just see this over and over again as we move forward in time. But there is an MLM called Zaya that I found when I was prepping for this. And this is how they describe themselves. They say Zaya Active is an active lifestyle brand. It is also a culture. There's that word again. That believes in embracing activity with excitement, vigor, and delight. We feel that pushing your body and mind is easier and more fun. With friends and family, our mission is to inspire and uplift by making activity a fun and essential part of life. And when I was reading this, it was so interesting to me. The first thing that I thought of while I was reading this description, it was Dare to Shine, which everyone will remember was like much Mm -hmm. maligned uh, slogan of the 2019 Women's World Cup in France. And it's that same kind of rhetoric and language that we use to market a lot of the time market women's sports to women and I think I don't know what to do with that but I think that that is fascinating that all of that language is exactly on top like you could just swap it out right and like you would have it over and over and over again and so there is something here of just about how we talk to women and about women that uh is just fascinating to me. It is. And and it's not, I mean, the relationship between sports and um, MLMs, pyramid schemes, is a longstanding one. I think about the Orlando Magic playing in the Amway Center. And I don't know if that many people know about Amway, but I grew up in Michigan and that's where it was founded. And it was incredibly Um, powerful as an institution, the DeVos family owned the magic. And it was totally built on this idea that working class people could have their own businesses. And this is how small businesses worked. And 
it was sold as a family product, as as bettering your family, doing something for your family, a little bit different than what we see with the Dare to Shine, right? It, it's built on this idea that your family could build an empire, you know, and you could you could do this for you. Again, still working class women, single moms, um, totally as the target, but a little bit of a different twist. And of course, the DeVos family has given us um, the reprehensible Betsy DeVos. So, I mean, <laughs> these are people like knee deep in politics, too. Um, and they're not the only one out there. Jess? Yeah, we see MLMs pop up all over the place. So Mina Kimes did a big piece in 2016 on Advocare, which is a quality nutrition company, an MLM started by a former Kansas City NFL player and backed by a ton of athletes, including Drew Brees. So like her whole thing was really about like Drew Brees is the face of Advocare. The guy who founded the company, according to Mina's piece, decided early on that Advocare would focus on sports. And so he enlisted coaches from nearby Southern Methodist University to work for him. That's like how he started the company was like going in that angle. And it's interesting because I was thinking about this. I'm like, I'm wondering if sports and nutrition, it works well as MLM fodder because it you can be roped into the unending wellness, improving yourself rhetoric that we're talking about here that's associated with MLMs. And then speaking of Advocare, they've been connected to Major League Soccer since 2015, first as an official sports nutrition partner with the league. And as of last year, they were on FC Dallas's jersey. But they're not the only MLM connected to the MLS. Real Salt Lake, which is interesting there's a lot of MLMs that come out of the Mormon community. Uh, Real Salt Lake has long been in bed with Life Vantage, which is a supplement company that has an MLM compensation structure similar to LuLaRoe. And the LA Galaxy's jersey sleeve this season features Herbalife Nutrition, which everyone, I feel like everyone's seen Herbalife somewhere. It's a company that the FTC technically decided was not a pyramid scheme back in 2016, but it did so by telling the company it had to change a bunch of things in order not to be <laughs> a pyramid scheme. So... <laughs> just interesting that little overlap there in that particular league oh yeah and I I think it's more than a coincidence because I feel like the MLS is based on a Ponzi scheme on you know the original investors making their money off of the new you know it's it's as it expands they essentially were able to carry losses by the initiation fees required of expansion teams austin wow that's how it works look at that and so it's just the idea that you constantly constantly expand and that the original teams would benefit down the line from mm. these new initiation fees and the influx of cash from recruiting new franchises so for me, I felt like, of course, the MLS would do that because that's how MLS works. It is an MLM. Well, I mean, like at the heart of what what you guys are both describing, right, is that I saw this tweet that it was like, it's so hard sometimes to separate like these schemes from capitalism because capitalism is already a giant fraud, right? And part of the reason why you can really sell supplements and fitness or whatever, because we already live in a society that tells you, you have to be smaller, you have to be smaller, you have to be smaller, you're lazy or this or that, whatever. And that kind of pressure of productivity and of appearance is already shaping so much of how capitalism is run in our society about what people reach to or how they need to be pressured to work, et cetera. And so I think about like why people would want to buy supplements or leggings or slimming, you know, panels in their leggings or whatever, right? It's because we're constantly inundated 
by by these pressures and these expectations. And then when I think about what you just said about the MLS, right, it's like, why do people want teams, right? We, we know this. We know one of the first things that emerging nation states did in the era of decolonization was try to get into the Olympic movement. One of the first things they did at University of Hawaii when became a state, and this is what I write about, is like they had to build up their athletics because these are the modern um, markers of belonging, right? Sports is used in this way. And so when we're talking about sports, it's intersecting with this stuff it's mm-hmm. like they are functioning to sell a dream to keep those reaching fingers who are reaching for what is deemed as acceptable or good or whatever just it's like the carrot on a rope um and so i think that you know just listening to you guys describe these things i, I can see why <sighs> why they're so effective can i just say like you're totally right that it is capitalism like at its like most refined in some way it's in the same way that a monopoly Mm -hmm. is right and like it's so capitalism that we have to create laws and regulations in order to make people not do it we don't actually care about that actually regulate these things but we know we should that we know that they're that they're bending too far in one direction but they're like they're so capitalism that like we recognize the way that they messed up the free market or whatever but here's the thing about it right is like it's so baked into our society that I find myself kind of thinking about how fine that line is and how these it overlaps. Cause I know obviously like I'm in Peloton, which is a mini cult. We always say it's the best cult, but I think that like, there's all these jokes like, Oh, you're in an MLM, right? Just being on your own social media and, and the way that we have technology now, like you're able to, to quickly post your workouts or your sharing clips or whatever you're wearing the, this active wear that we're talking about. It is, in many ways, you like do the work of marketing, except I think about that, like when I think about Peloton and I'm like not being facetious at all when I say that it like literally saved my mental health during a pandemic, but it also brought me to a space where I found these incredibly generative digital communities. And the way you interact with these digital communities is in social media, is by these posts, is by these interactions. And I'm aware that what that looks like then is also this kind of long ranging marketing thing. And I asked Brendan, Jess, like, how do I know if I'm in the MLS? <laughs> if you have to like, recruit other people to keep your membership in Peloton, you get out. Right. <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you know. I, was, I did just win Sharina bike. <laughs> but that's different. They're going to kick you out of Peloton. If you don't right. recruit someone, then you get out. <laughs> but I, I think that it does speak to like, I can, I get it, right? Like, I get it and I get why it's mm-hmm. so hard to then regulate. And I talk about this with Nike all the time and their commercials are like that, right? They're so inspiring. They're freaking inspiring. Like, we know how they treated track runners like Allison Felix and Alyssa Montano. We know this. And then they put out their stupid mother commercials about how mothers are act like the only athletes. And I was even giving a talk this week where I was saying how Allison was like, we don't see the fight here. But that little baby check under the big check makes me cry every time. Yeah, it's Nike and they're terrible. Yeah, I don't think that we can close this out without me um, talking a little bit about the the production of all of this, whether it's the Peloton bikes and the manufacturing or the clothing. Um, And not to like get too Marxist, but definitely to get real Marxist. I think about commodity fetishism, right? This idea that all of this cultural inspiration and production, which is real, and mobilizes all of our emotions, our insecurities, our hopes, and our dreams are there to hide the fact or function as 
uh, sort of veil between what we're experiencing and the way that these goods are produced. And the way that they're produced is horrific. It's slave labor. I always, I know this is so bad. I'm so sorry because probably my kids will be in therapy forever. But I remember tying their Nikes and saying, for kids, buy kids. I just can't help going back to that. And Nike, you know, 20 years ago, it was a big conversation, right? Sweatshops and Nike. And how did they get to the point where they became the face of Kaepernick, where they became, you know, boosters for um, Allison Felix? How did they even get there? And they got there because they had to save their image at a particular point. And there were all kinds of people helping them along the way. And I just want to call out one more time Paul Krugman and Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times that wrote an article. I I I can not even say this without wanting to burn everything, in which they said, while it shocks Americans to hear it, the central challenge in the poorest countries is not that sweatshops exploit too many people, but that they don't exploit enough. And that's what they said. They said sweatshops would help them grow economically. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. And so there was this whole reimagining of Nike doing some good in the world. And we know now, I mean, it doesn't take a long time to, you know, Google and find this out. But if anyone's interested, there's the Clean Clothes campaign cleanclothes.org. You can check it out. There are people and unions working on this. Um, Last week, the International Accord for Health and Safety in the Textile and Garment Industry was, um, it's not passed, it's international, but people sign it, countries sign it, companies sign it. The U.S. is the worst, including Walmart, The Gap, JCPenney, that refuse to even attempt to do things like regulate labor in Cambodia. So, I know that that is not um, fun, but I know what this does. And what this does is it prevents us from seeing how this stuff is made all the time. Um, And I think we just have to come back and see these campaigns for what they are. And it doesn't mean they won't inspire us because we're human beings with (laughs) real emotions and they're not we're not bad people because we're inspired by it. But I don't think we should lose sight of that. And COVID, just to end maybe on the not the most depressing note. Um, COVID maybe has shaken up surprisingly in in unintended ways the supply chain um, for some of this. We've seen some companies uh, have to buy manufacturing facilities in the U.S. because of the disruption. Amira? Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly what Peloton did, for instance, when there was such a big demand for the bikes during the pandemic and shipping became a huge problem. People were waiting months um, because of the supply chain that Brenda is mentioning. And so they invested $100 million into both helping that supply chain, but they ultimately decided to break ground in Ohio and build a huge manufacturing campus there. Uh, Chelsea, the black yogi that I've talked about before, who was from Dayton, Ohio, went and helped break broke ground there. They've been doing a lot of community partnerships around it. And this, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that wouldn't have happened, right, pre-pandemic. It just wasn't even going to be on the table. Um, And so I think it is interesting to see how the pandemic has disrupted, you know, many things, but labor production as well. And, and, you know, what possibilities might be there, but because it's, you know, the world and capital and whatever, I don't think that it's, oh, yay, all possibilities, people are doing the right thing. I think it's just 
what is the next kind of <laughs> level of exploitation happening? Well, I mean, you know, I do think the closer that we are to the manufacturing of the product, the more we can keep our eyes on it. Yes. And the more that we can regulate it and the more we can unionize it. And so I believe that like all that goodwill and all of that vision boarding comes from a place that will care about people if we just think that we can affect the change. And so I do think Nordic Track getting a Utah facility, you know, doing these things closer to home, hopefully will be a step in the right direction. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Check out our interview on Thursday when Amira talks to Dave Zirin about his new book, The Kaepernick Effect, which tells the story of athletes and teams across the country who contributed to the rising tide of political action via sport. They also talk about what it's been like to write about sports and politics in this moment, the impact of celebrity and cultural capital, and the joy and pain of coaching your kids' sports teams. The name I heard a lot more than Colin Kaepernick's when they talked about their motivations was Trayvon Martin. Because then, like, speaking to them, it's like, okay, so it was Trayvon that was in your heart. Where does Kaepernick come into it? And then it's, oh, he gave us the method. He gave us the how. And I think that that's important because otherwise people will just drill it down to a cult of Colin kind of argument, which doesn't really serve us and it doesn't tell the truth. Now it's time for the burn pile where we take the rest of the garbage out and put it on the proverbial flames. Amira. Yeah. (laughs) So um, about a month ago now, the NCAA announced the committee that they had formed to like, you know, overhaul its constitution. They appointed many people, no academics, really um, you can see that the the level of, of influence there is not coming from, you know, experts, faculty on campus, you know, whatever. A lot of it is power players. And the person who is heading the charge um, is Robert Gates. And if you're thinking Robert Gates, like the Pentagon dude, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, uh, former CIA dude Robert Gates, also, of course, was, was president of, of Texas A&M. Aww. And I think it also just as a reminder, if you want to go down that list of people involved in this committee, how much sports and politics 
are intertwined. And it's never like Department of Ed folks, right, who are intertwined with. It's always like Condoleezza Rice or the Director of National Intelligence. It's just like, at this point, we're just parody. Like, it's just kind of ridiculous. But why I'm bringing this up because there is a brand new interview with Gates, which is his first kind of at-length interview about the direction he intends to take this investigation or task force. I don't know. He has a million task force and committees and all the things because the NCAA is an organization that would rather publish like a hundred page report to say absolutely nothing at all or form a task force and a committee and then a subcommittee and then like another investigative committee only to come to the same sorry ass conclusion that they actually can't do anything. I mean, Jess made this point so eloquently um, recently when when we saw them do absolutely nothing around Baylor and, and the point that she raised like actually there's nothing they can do because they're not set up to do shit um, except throw their power around. And then the other dance that we're seeing, of course, is school presidents who use the NCAA's cover, right, are now the ones like, oh, yeah, it's completely a mess. Like, they should reform themselves. And it's like, you're all bound up together. And so here's Gates now in his first interview um, saying cutesy shit like, oh, well, the organizational charts of the NCAA and the FBI are both like incomprehensible. And, you know, I can do this in three months. Like, I, during the Cold War, I had less time. Like, no, no, no. We don't need this. We don't need this Venn diagram of, of bullshit. Um, it just tells you a lot, right, about this organization that would tap and seize somebody like Robert Gates, right, who has been a college president, who has been on the board, who has overseen the CIA and been in the FBI. Like, these organizations are are also fucked up. And that is who inspires confidence in you, tells you everything you need to know about the propensity for change in the National Collegiate Amateur Athletic Association. Is that what they're called? I don't know. In the words of J. Cole, don't save her. She don't want to be saved. Burn it all down. Burn. I'm going to burn, metaphorically, the Bolivian Football Federation this week. They canceled a friendly between the Dominican Republic and Bolivia. They were going to travel to Bolivia. It's the women's team. And they canceled it at the last minute. They were already convoked. They had already traveled, taken off work, et cetera. And at the last minute, canceled due to budgetary issues. This is the same federation whose president, the last president, um, was arrested mid-match for corruption by the Bolivian government because he refused to leave his um, job as the president of the FA. And so this is a disaster. And they all signed a letter, the members of the team, the all the women, and officially sent it to the Federation. Comebol said nothing. FIFA so far has said nothing. And it may seem small, To people, you know, you just cancel the match. We'll just reschedule it or something like that. But it's on the spectrum, as we've discussed on this show, of sexism where people – like, what does it have to be? I mean, this is the same pass that you're going to give them for graver things. And do you think they're not doing that? Do you think Do you think that their like total neglect and dismissal of women in football isn't having other effects in other places and other teams that are more serious? And even if it's not, why should they put up with this bullshit anyway? The Bolivian FA was perfectly fine to fund the men's team just last week to play three different matches. So whatever about that, and where did your FIFA 
FIFA forward development money go? Where are you, Mauricio Macri, the ex-president of Argentina, who's one of the most corrupt ex-officials in the world and I'm sure about to get a position at the Harvard Kennedy School any day now? This is some serious bullshit. And, like, you all need to, like, go to jail for corruption and for sexism. It's the same thing, and it's gross, and I want to burn it. So burn. 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 Jess. Yeah, so um, content note that I'm about to talk about sexual assault and sexual abuse, child sexual abuse. On Wednesday, four gymnasts, Simone Biles, Michaela Maroney, Maggie Nichols, and Allie Raisman, sat before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Capitol Hill here in the U.S., and once again told their stories of abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser and also the myriad of ways that USA Gymnastics, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and specifically the FBI, let them down once they reported those crimes. Here is a part of Allie Raisman's opening statement. Over the past few years, it has become painfully clear how a survivor's healing is affected by the handling of their abuse. And it disgusts me that we are still fighting for the most basic answers and accountability over six years later. The point of the hearing was mainly to pinpoint the way in which the FBI failed them all. This summer, the Department of Justice released a 119-page report showing that FBI officials in Indianapolis used extremely poor judgment when they investigated reports about Nasser. People in the FBI not only made false statements, false statements, but they failed to respond for months after getting initial reports, a delay that led to Nasser sexually abusing more than 100 other gymnasts. And at the time, special agent in charge, W.J. Abbott, was talking to then-USAG President Steve Penny about a job with USAG. It's all so fucked up, and it's right there where we can all read it. It's known information. This was not the first time gymnasts had appeared before Congress asking for answers and asking for change. And yet after these women each read damning and powerful opening statements, almost every single senator on that committee spent their time reacting to their testimony, not by telling us what they were going to do to change the FBI's culture or make sure that light is shed on every last dark corner around the response to reports of Nasser. They didn't really promise much of anything beyond some lip service. They mainly told these women that they were brave and inspiring, which, while true, is not why these women showed up. Congress controls the pocketbooks of the USOPC and USAG. The director of the FBI has to go before the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Commerce, Justice, Science, and Related Agencies because Congress has to approve their funding. The very people who could do something seem to instead want to use this hearing as a PR moment to use the pain of these women as an opportunity to put some fluffy words out into the world. I just wanted them all to shut up, shut up and do something. Asking for that continues to feel like shouting into the wind, even with a high-profile case like this one. I will forever applaud survivors who continue to advocate for a world that is less harmful to those who are abused. They do deserve our respect. But the best thing we can do to show them how much we respect them, the best thing Congress can do to show them is to change the fucking world. So get to it. And please join me in burning all of the senators' weak-ass responses. Burn. Burn. All right, let's move on to some happier tales. People doing the things to change those awful things that we just burned. I want to start out with honorable mentions for Torchbearers of the Week. The Champions of Solidarity, the Portland Thorns, and Nabisco. Nabisco workers are currently striking. 
And the Portland Thorns have been incredibly supportive. Many players, at least eight, have shown up on the picket line and have talked about how important it is for them to support the workers of their city. And fuck yeah. Amira. Yes, our fire extinguisher of the week is Hawaii's Carissa Moore, who won her fifth World Surfing League title, adding to the one she won in 2011, in 2013, in 2015, and 2019. And of course, because Carissa Moore won the Olympic gold, she now is also the first surfer ever to win Olympic and world titles in the same year. Congrats to you, Carissa. Molotovs of the week are U.S. Women's National Team members. Those that Neil. Um, announced this week that there will be the same contract offered to the men's and women's team. And even saying that makes me weepy. It was so public, their struggle. We watched it all. I don't know why it's not bigger news, but I'm just so excited um, by this. And I want it in every field, in every profession. Jess. Fire spitters of the week. The University of New Mexico and New Mexico State College football game last week was the first ever D1 game with both play-by-play and color commentary broadcast in Navajo. That's fucking cool. Yeah. Kyler Frank and Glenn King, both veteran radio men, called that game. And for our torchbearers of the week, can I get a drum roll? Yeah, it's going to be those gymnasts. Jessica already told you why. That's it. And in dark times, we like to talk a little bit about what's good in our world. I'm going to go first. This was easy for me. So our town has something called Hard Scrabble Day, which was canceled because of COVID. What the hell is Hard Scrabble? (laughs) Do you take shots? Hard Scrabble Day. The town I live in is not as... um, arable land as the towns next to it so in the beginning of the 20th century they called themselves hard scrabble so it was like the sad you know um, neighbors of tivoli and germantown and so they have this hard scrabble day which is about our sad harvest this is not the board game (laughs) (laughs) oh so you're not playing scrabble no Okay. That's what we thought no, you were talking about. It's like a town festival to like, I guess, celebrate that like shit is hard. I thought you were like taking shots of hard liquor while playing Scrabble. That would be amazing. And I'm sure a lot of people around here would be up for that. But no, it's like a kid. There's bands, you know, it's just a fun kind of thing. And it was canceled. Also, today I am going to the end of the a minor league baseball game, the affiliate of the Yankees, the Hudson Valley Renegades game, because I do love minor league baseball, and I'm really excited about that. And I'm also coaching um, U9, my daughter Julieta's team. So I'm excited to listen to you and Dave talk about coaching your kids' teams, Amira. Um, I really love it. Honestly, um, we won yesterday 3-1, and it felt really good because my overall average is, like, really bad in terms of coaching. So I needed that W. Like, I picture Brenda as, like, a Roy Kent, like, coach of (laughs) nine-year-olds. I did. It's not – that's probably not totally inaccurate. But, yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, they respond to it. So, you know, it's effective so far. (laughs) All right. 
Yeah, Mira, what's good in your world? I uh, went on the road for the first time in like a year and a half to give a talk. Um, I first popped back to Penn State and and I did a on the field coaching thing for the football team. It was really great to see some of my students. Um, and then I went down to Auburn to give a talk there. And thank you so much, Auburn History uh, and Athletics, for hosting me. And it was just kind of cool to be on a campus again, just even walking through campus. Um, and then, of course, like Auburn and Penn State played last night for the first time in like 90 years. So it's kind of a coincidence. Um, it was a thrilling game and we won and that was great. Also, uh, Samari got into the pre-professional program at Zach Theater here in Austin, which is really tremendous and like a really big achievement. Um, and so that's kicking off and it's just like really fun to, to celebrate her in that way. And then my last What's Goods are all internet videos that are making me very excited. The first is like incredibly specific, but the social media team for UT Volleyball is amazing. And they played a big match with Texas A&M this week. And before the match, Texas A&M, a few players posed with their horns down, their fingers pointing down and said, you know, beat the horns off of UT. That picture didn't age well at all. And the social media team took that picture, played Drake's Daddy's Home, and then posted all these clips of UT Volleyball just like spiking it in their face and then took like all the multicolor thumbs um, like Drake's album cover and then turn them down, thumbs down, which is a reciprocal diss to A&M. You have to go watch it because it's just a vibe. Um, and my other internet video that I'm obsessed with is the Planet Raps that Keats does. Young Earth, population seven billy. Climate change bars got my whole zone litty. It's a meltdown, we should really get busy. I got polar bears hot when they need to be chilly. Yo, it's All the planets are rapping, including like Percy the Meteor. And Pluto gets cut off when he's going off. And after NASA tweeted, oh, Pluto has bars, though. Everybody was like, oh, like, you have to let Pluto finish. So Pluto also got a freestyle. Y'all be saying Pluto, not a planet. NASA got me tight. They've been taking me for granted. 1930, they call me the last planet. Then in August 06, they made it a new standard. Like, what? Sorry, but you're too small, fella. Calling me a dwarf. Awesome. Jazz? Yeah, well, what's good is... Oh, wait! No! Wait! Sorry! Also, Sex Education Season 3 came out, and I finished it all, and it's the best show ever, and it gives me all the warm and fuzzies. I was shocked that you had not said Sex Education. And then as soon as it went to you, I was like, if Jessica takes my thing, but I know you haven't watched it yet. I have watched three episodes, and it's amazing. Okay, well, I've watched all eight, and I did want to say, you know, I got Brenda to watch it, and Brenda is very Maeve-like, and... I have to say, I had this moment when I was watching Maeve that I was going to call you, but I just decided to tell you right now. I just adore you, and I'm so proud of you. And I Aww. think that um, there's a way that, like, we don't always witness people's journeys because we just, like, kind of work with them. But I was thinking and reflecting on it as I was watching Maeve, and I was thinking, like, damn, Brenda is just such a badass. And I just have to say from the glimpses of your journey that you share with the public and and that we get that I am just like so incredibly grateful for you in all of our lives. And I just wanted to tell you that you're like fucking really cool. Oh, that really makes me weepy. Thank you. Now I have to go watch it. (laughs) You'll like it. It's wonderful. Thank you. I love you too. Jessica. Wow. So now I'm going to go. Okay. It's Virgo cake week in this house. 
So that's good. The cake is really good. I just want you all to know that. <laughs> we're on our second. We're halfway through the second cake and we're doing just fine. Um, I did want to mention, I know it's difficult, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine ended its series this week and I have long loved it. It's like the perfect group ensemble, um, but it is a cop ensemble. So the the show tried to figure out how to deal with that in the last season and it's clunky, but it's still the best group ensemble. And the final episode is beautiful and I definitely cried, but I do specifically want to mention their cold opens are amazing. And the third episode of the final season, that cold open, Aaron and I have watched it probably 25 times, if not more. Like we will just go and watch it like six times in a row. I don't understand how it's so good and it's so stupid, but it's just hilarious. And so that is what's good is the cold open of Episode three, season eight of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's very specific, but it has brought us so much joy. All right. Everybody's got their tasks. Now we know when to watch. And come next year for Hard Scrabble. I think we should have our own Hard Scrabble day that involves shots and Scrabble. It's true. That sounds even funner, actually. Okay, what we are watching this week includes Liga Mexicana Femenil. Monterrey and Tigres are tied for first. So get yourself some Forza Football app if it's hard for you to follow their schedule and watch it on ESPN+. Also, WNBA playoffs start on September 23rd. So those are two great things to watch. On behalf of all of us on Burn It All Down, that's it for this week. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Total wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. Burn on and not out. Thanks again.